0: Genesis chapter 49 this evening, and I've made some kind of mess up here. You see this? I'm tearing everything all to pieces. Genesis chapter 49 this evening, and uh, we have for the past few weeks been preaching through the blessings of Jacob upon his 12 sons. And Jacob is lying upon his deathbed, and he is uttering these things that are personal, practical, practical, and prophetic to the lives of his boys. Some of these things could be understood in a dispositional sense, meaning that Jacob understood the personalities and personages of his children. He had watched them grow up, and at this time, none of them are young men, but they are all grown adults of considerable age. And he has watched the way they have lived their lives, and the way they have raised their families, And he understands something about the disposition of his sons. There is also an understanding of this passage that is dispensational in its application. Jacob makes the statement in verse number 1. It says, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. We understand that that terminology, last days, is not incidental or coincidental but it has very, very profound and distinct prophetic overtones. And Jacob is saying to them that these things will befall them in the days when God brings to summation His activity in human affairs. Or we might say this, that it would come to pass as God draws the curtain closed on the story of humanity. And as we have considered that application, we've looked at each of the sons that we've preached on. We understand that the prophecies concerning them provide a timetable for the way God was going to deal with the Jews or the way the Jews were going to deal with God, or we might just say the way that their tribal history would unfold. It begins with Reuben in verse number 3 and teaches to us that though God had provided all the opportunity for the Jewish people to adopt and appropriate and embrace God as their king and to live in bliss and happiness, that God had provided all these things and had provided them by covenant and by promise, that because of their instability, that they would not excel, that they would not take advantage of these things, but that they would be rebellious and that they would spurn God's love for them. In verse number 5, Simeon and Levi's prophecy is given to us. That portrays to us the time leading from when they had spurned the theocratic form of government that God had sought to institute in their nation. Uh, It begins, I believe, personally with the reign of Saul, and it ends with the splitting, dividing of the two kingdoms, and the exile and captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah. God said that he was going to uh, divide them, and he did that in uh, Rehoboam's day. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon, and because of some bad advice that he took, uh, you know, bad advice, uh, sometimes it's bad, sometimes it's really bad. And I don't know what's below really bad, but he got a hold of it. <laughs> and uh, because of his advice, the kingdom was split into a usurper, A uh, mutineer by the name of Jeroboam, who had been in exile in Egypt, comes back to the land and leads an insurrection against uh, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Uh, Judah presents to us the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We spent a lot of time last Sunday night examining how that this portrays to us his first advent, his earthly ministry, his death on the cross, and his triumphant resurrection from the grave. If you're a student of the Bible and a student of history, then you know that uh, some 40 years after, uh, you know, give or take a few, some 40 years after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, a very important thing takes place in the history of the Jewish people. We call it the diaspora, and historians call it the diaspora. Uh, But a more practical understanding is that in 70 A.D., uh, the Roman general, he was not emperor at that time, he was a general by the name of Titus. Uh, he lays siege to Jerusalem, he sacks Jerusalem, and uh, he burns the temple to the ground, and he scatters the Jewish people to the four corners of the globe. As you examine and consider this, it would be easy to ask, where is God in all of it? But we find this, that the sovereign promises of God were not able to be wrecked by a petulant Roman tyrant, but God was in control of that situation. And just as God had promised to bless bless the Jewish people and to bless all nations through them, when the Jews were scattered all over the world, that same blessing was shared all over the entire world. And as we consider these prophecies, I believe that the prophecy concerning Jacob's son Zebulun sums up this period of time in the history of the nation of Israel. We might say this, that there is an aspect of this period of time that it sums up. And you'll see this to be true when it talks about Issachar. In the same way that Simeon and Levi both simultaneously describe the period of time from the reign of Saul down to the earthly ministry of Christ, but they portray different aspects of it. Simeon portrays the uh, stubborn, willful, sinfulness of the nation of Israel that caused God to have to judge them and scatter them. And Levi presents to us the remnant of Jews that believed God and were faithful and that God used. In the same way, Zebulun and Issachar present to us two separate aspects to the time period that the Jews are right now living in as we speak. Now, I want to read both of them together, but we're really only going to preach on Zebulun tonight. But I want to say a word about it. We'll read these uh, three verses, and then we'll pray and say a few words about it before we preach. Verse 13 says this, Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea. And he shall be in haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Zidon. Issachar is a strong ass couching down between two burdens. And he saw that rest was good, and the land that it was pleasant, and bowed his shoulder to bear, and became a servant unto tribute. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the time you've given us. I pray, Lord, that you'd give clarity to my thoughts and words tonight. God, that you'd speak to the hearts of your people We love you, Lord, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If I was to describe the two aspects that both Zebulun and Issachar present to us of the Jews in this day that we live, I would say this, that Zebulun presents to us the scattering of the Jewish people, and Issachar presents to us the servitude of the Jewish people. Now, there are two things that if you examine history and even the present day and the condition of the Jews you understand two things concerning them as a people. One, you understand that they, uh, above any other people that have ever lived, any other nationality, have been scattered all over the world and yet retained a uh, cultural ethnic identity. We talked a little bit about it last Sunday night. No matter where the Jews have gone, they seem to have remained Jews. Now, this is not true of you and me. Uh, If I was to give you my ancestry, I guess I would be Scotch, Irish, Welsh, German. But if you were to ask me, Toby, what are you? I'd say I'm 100% bona fide Appalachian American. Amen? That's who and what I am. I don't walk around saying I'm a Scotsman or an Irishman or a Welshman or a German. Because though those things are in my DNA, they are not a part of my heritage. You go far enough back, you might find them. But Daddy didn't raise me as a German. Mama didn't raise me as a Welshman. I was raised as an Appalachian American. Many of you could say the same thing about your history and your heritage. But the Jews are distinct from that, in that wherever they have gone, all over the world, it seems that they retain the moniker of being a Jew. If they're in Poland, they're a Polish Jew. If they're in Germany, they're a German Jew. If they're in Africa, they're an African Jew. And all over the globe, you can go and find people that if you were to say, are you a Jew, they'd say, yes, I'm a Jew. And he agrees. (laughs) They've been scattered. But we find that they also are people of servitude. Wherever they've gone in human history from this point until now, they've always been the servant of somebody. Part of the reason the world is boiling over right now is because the Jews are seeking to not be a servant of anyone again. And all throughout human history, from this point, you understand, I don't mean the prophecy of Jacob, but I mean ever since the diaspora, ever since the Romans sacked Jerusalem, ever since from that point until now, they have always been a people of servitude. Wherever they have gone, they have always been a people of great economic prosperity, but a people that were always considered second class and on the outskirts and on the fringe of society. They have always been a servant under tribute. Now, you may say to yourself, well, preacher, that's good, and that's a good lesson, and that may teach me some things. But what does it mean to you and I? Well, we have acknowledged that there are three ways that we can absorb something from this passage of Scripture. One is in a uh, personal sense. And uh, i got to admit to you that when we examine this on a personal sense, we really don't learn an immense amount about Zebulun. In fact, this is the only mention of Zebulun as a person in all of the Old Testament, apart from the fact that he was the child of Jacob. There is no personal narrative history concerning him as an individual. There are a few short instances where the name of the tribe of Zebulun does appear in, in, in a distinct way, but they do not necessarily share the characteristics that are prophesied in this verse before us. There is also a prophetic sense in which we understand that, that which we've just spoken of. And certainly, if you ever need listen, if you ever need to understand if the Word of God is inspired, just read it sometime. Uh, as you begin to study and read it, and, and read it in a dispensational way, because that's the appropriate way to read it. The Bible says this, rightly dividing the word of truth. If I was to give you a verse that was a proof text for dispensationalism, it would be the verse that tells us rightly dividing the word of truth. We must understand that there are divisions in it and are different portions in it. And certainly when you study the Bible from a dispensational viewpoint, you can't help but see that the Word of God is inspired. There is no way that Jacob could have known then what was going to happen to the nation of Israel some 1600 years later. And yet there it is in the Word of God, and it coincides perfectly with what we know of the history of the Jewish people. But I don't want us to concern ourselves really with the prophetic understanding or even the personal understanding. But we know that there's a practical application to these verses. Now, you may strain to understand that this evening in the context of Zebulun because I've got to admit to you that I live in East Tennessee. I don't plan on moving. I'm happy right where I'm at. Uh, I may go to the beach about once or twice a year, if that. Uh, We went last year and it was the first time in 10 years, I guess, that we had gone. And we're not sick of it yet, so we'll go back again this year. But I, I really have no desire to dwell by the sea. I don't believe God is saying it is virtuous in some intrinsic capacity to dwell by the seashore. If that's where you want to live, that's fine. But I don't believe that God is teaching us that that's what we need necessarily to do from this passage of Scripture. But we understand that there is a parallel that we can draw between an Old Testament passage and a a profound New Testament truth. Now, uh, when we read about Zebulun in the Old Testament, they went down to the seashore so that they might dwell by the sea and participate in the commerce of that place so that they might enjoy the benefits of living in a a prosperous place such as the Mediterranean seashore. And their border even reaches unto Zidon. Now, you may know that as Sidon, but uh, no matter or whether you pronounce it with the Z or the S, it's still the famous port city of ancient days that Alexander the Great uh, finally sacked when he was uh, conquering the world. And Tyre and Sidon, those twin sisters of the Mediterranean that were great and vast seaports and fortresses, uh, this was a place of great prominence and a place of great prosperity. And the Bible says that Zebulun's border would go even unto that place. Now, when we go over into the New Testament, and by the way, we're living in the New Testament. Somebody say amen to that. When we go into the New Testament, we understand that the seashore has quite a different implication. Consistently, it is connected with the idea of evangelism in fact we find this to be true uh that the vast majority uh as far as if you were to take a percentage uh, uh, uh that had uh, the same um uh the the same career and the same job and the same occupation uh the majority of the people that Christ called into the ministry were what they were fishermen he went down by the seashore he sees James and John and they're cleaning their nets and Christ draws this parallel he says you know you've you've spent your life in pursuit of fish but he says this I want you to fish after men. And in fishing after men, you're going to do far more and enjoy far more satisfaction and affect eternity in a, in a more vast way than you ever could by going down to the seashore to enjoy the prosperities of these portside towns. You know, when we looked at the different young men, we saw that Reuben is a lesson in squandered opportunities. We saw that Simeon is a lesson in sin's consequences. Levi presents to us a beautiful truth on second chances, and Judah, of course, speaks to us of the Savior's ministry. But I think when we look at Zebulun, we can't help but learn a lesson about sharing the gospel. Now, this was Zebulun's chief purpose in his life. You say, how do we know that? Because that's where he chose to live. Let me tell you something, where a man spends most of his time will tell you something about what his priorities are. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, These folks that spend their time down at the bar, that's their priority folks that spend time at home with their family as much as they can. That's their priority. Uh, And, uh, you know, a lot of times our priorities kind of get out of whack. Well, what was Zebulun's priority? I don't know if this had been an infatuation since he was a little boy or if this was a development as he became a grown man, but in some way he began to hear the sirens call of the Mediterranean Sea. And he said to himself, and evidently he said to his daddy, Daddy, I want to go and live my life by the seashore and see what I can make out of it. You know, each and every one of us, our passion, our purpose in life, we've got a lot of purposes, and I think that's great, but I think the greatest purpose that we can have is that we might share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's the greatest pursuit that anyone can engage in. Let me tell you something anybody that doesn't love sinners doesn't have a heart like Jesus because he loved sinners. Anybody that doesn't spend their time actively trying to be a witness to lost individuals is spending their time in a way different than the Son of God spent his. And I think when we look at Zebulun's choice, that maybe we can understand some things about the choices we ought to make in our life and the way that we ought to live our lives. Let me tell you something. Most Christians never give a thought to being a witness. We go about our day, we go to the store, we go to the bank, we go to the doctor, uh, whatever it is that we go about doing. And all around us, swimming like fish in a sea, are lost individuals in need of Christ's salvation. And yet we let them pass by us. Zebulun said, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to go there and I'm going to make a difference. And I believe you and I could probably say the same thing if we'll consider a few things about what he did. Now, I want you to notice his residence. The Bible says this, a Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea. What was the premise of his decision? Well, we understand by the rest of the verse that evidently Zebulun wanted to engage in commerce of some kind. And he knew that if he had to do that, he wanted to do that, he knew that if that was his goal in life, he's going to have to go to a place where commerce happens. You know, that's not really any different than winning people to Christ is. If you want to win people to Christ, you have to go to places where folks that need to be won to Christ are. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I don't mean to engage in wicked activity. I don't mean to give the appearance of evil because the Bible says we ought not, that we ought to flee from even the appearance of evil. But what I am saying is this each and every one of us, we have a bubble of people around us. We all do. Uh, you know, one of the things that is a clear indication of that, when well, you look on the Facebook, right? And you can tell people's attitude. Now, I'm going to make a confession now, okay? Confession's good for the soul. Uh, you know, if somebody gives me too much grief on Facebook, do you know there's a little button you can click where it's like they just disappear? Anybody know what I'm talking about? You go over and you click that unfollow button, and it's like they fell off the face of the earth, because most of these people you don't ever see anyway. And you get to mold and shape the bubble, the environment that you live within. Well, you know, you may do that on Facebook. I wouldn't fault you there. I have to admit I'm guilty of it sometimes. But there's a great danger in doing that in life and allowing ourselves to only be surrounded with people that are going to tell us what we want to hear and what we agree with. One of the great things and benefits that you have, and I don't mean to minimize the opportunity that I have, but as a full-time pastor, you spend a lot of time with God's people. You go to hospitals and you're around God's people. I mean, you go visit in the home and, and most of the time you're, you're around God's people. You come to the church house and you're around God's people. And some of you have an opportunity, maybe even greater, maybe even above what I have. And I'm not trying to minimize my responsibility, but so many times I think folks think, well, it's the pastor's job. But do you realize that you have an even greater opportunity than I might have in that you are out in the midst of the world walking and conversing and connecting with people on a daily basis? If you work a job, you probably work with lost people. If you, you young people, you go to school, you probably go to school with lost folks. I mean, I know, I went to a Christian school and I went to school with lost folks. And I don't mean folks that, looking back now, I'm talking about folks that they'd tell you I'm lost. You know, and I went to a, a, a Christian school. Uh, if you go to a doctor's office and I, and I listen, I won't ask for a raise of hands, but I know we got some doctor going people in this room, <laughs> then I wasn't picking on Eugene then you're around people that are in need of Christ's salvation. There might be a couple people in here that go to the Walmart. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, it's such a small little kind of rinky-dink ma and pa place, but there might be a few of you in here that go to the Walmart and you're surrounded by lost individuals. You see, the reality is this. Zebulun had to go to the haven of the sea. But most of us, we don't have to go much further than out our front door. And we're surrounded by people that need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The premise of his decision was he had to go to the place where the ships were. He had to go to the place where commerce happened. And you and I were surrounded by people that need to hear the gospel. But notice his pursuit. He heard about it. He knew it was the truth. Now, this is where the disconnect happens with most Christians, all right? Most of us, we like the the Great Commission. We just like it for everybody else. Most of us, we agree on paper that, that lost people need the Lord and we're the ones to give the gospel to them. I mean, we understand that on paper, but somewhere there's a disconnect. And Zebulun understood this. If I want to go and be a part of this community, if I want to allow my influence to go further than these borders and to take flight upon the sea and reach places that I could never reach, then I'm going to have to go where the ships are. And it means enough to me that I'll uproot my life and I'll go there if that's what it takes. Now stop and consider this. There's people all over this world, all over this country. I get calls weekly from missionaries that are uprooting themselves and they're moving their family and they're going across the world and they're reaching a people group that most of you and I will never have any contact with. And God bless them for that. I, I believe God does that. I believe God calls them to do that. I, I'm not minimizing that. But do you understand that you and I, it takes just so little to give the gospel out. It ta- listen now, it, just ta- it takes so little to reach out somebody that we know, somebody that we care about, somebody that we see. Now listen, if they're willing to do that in the same way that Zebulun was willing to uproot his family and himself, then shouldn't you and I be willing and able to merely just go and reach out to somebody that might live two doors down, might sit two desks down, might be just two feet from us? You see, the reality is this, that the Great Commission, it begins with go. And despite all of our greatest efforts, it doesn't begin with pay. It doesn't begin with sponsor. It begins with go. Now, I, I listen, I'm for supporting missions. I mean, I, I'm for giving to missions personally, not just collectively as a church, and not, not just trying to allocate a portion of your tithe, which I don't really believe is scriptural anyway. I, I believe the tithe ought to go to the local church, and I believe anything that we give personally to missions ought to be over and above that. But, but, I mean, I'm for doing those things. But you understand that you can't write a check and buy off your conscience in this matter. God expects each and every one of us to go and to reach a lost and dying world. We see his premise and we see his pursuit. Don't you notice his patience? The Bible says this, he'll dwell at the haven of the sea. I would confess to you that probably our greatest failure in witnessing is we give up too easily. Now, I don't mean that we're not abrupt enough or abrasive enough. I've known some abrasive people. Can I tell you, I've been abrasive before. And I, and I don't recommend that to you <laughs> for a myriad of reasons. But I mean, I, uh, Mainly because I don't believe it honors Christ for us to be rude or ugly. Uh, The Bible talks about adorning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means the gospel has a lot of unsavory elements to the natural man, so we ought not try to make it any more unsavory than it has to be. The gospel is already an offense to a lost and dying man, so don't let your demeanor or your words be an offense if you can at all help it. You ought to adorn the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm not talking about being abrasive or being ugly or being rude or being arrogant or, or, or being narcissistic. What I'm talking about is being persistent and patient and willing to stay there as long as it takes. I don't, and I don't just mean in the matter of witnessing. I mean in the matter of prayer. I mean in the matter of not giving up on folks. Let tell you something, we, we've taken that passage where Christ tells His apostles to shake the dust off their feet, and, and listen, I mean, we've took that as, as, as a tap-dancing lesson. And now we witness to someone, and the second that they don't get saved, we kick that dust off, our. And right, I'm done with them, and we move on to the next one. Well, Now listen, I'm not saying you'd be ugly, but I'm saying this, I'm glad somebody didn't give up on me. And probably some of you in this room, you're glad somebody didn't give up on you. There might be somebody in this room that could, could give me a testimony, that could, that could give me a witness right here and say that, that it, it took some time for them to get saved. And if somebody would give up after the first prayer, they wouldn't be sitting here tonight. If somebody would give up after the first witness, they wouldn't be here tonight. Somebody had some patience, somebody had some love, somebody had some, uh, some, uh, some character about them enough to stick in with that thing and to pray for them and be patient and persistent with them. You know, listen, most stuff takes more than one try. Uh, let me ask you something. If, you, if, you, if it takes you three tries to start your weed eater, why do you think it only take you one to win someone to Christ? I mean, that's the truth. You understand what you're doing when you witness to someone? And I'm not trying to minimize the role of the Holy Spirit in this matter. I understand He must open eyes. I understand He must convict. I understand He must make aware. But I understand this too, that we're uh, that we're uncircumcised of heart and stiff-necked and hard-hearted sometimes. And I know that human nature uh, is to uh, resist the Holy Ghost. Now, I, the Calvinists don't like that. They don't believe you can resist the Holy Ghost. But, but Stephen said that the Jews did re- resist the Holy He said, as your fathers do, so do ye always resist. The Holy Ghost. And, and let me just say, if, if it takes us two, three, four, five times, some of you all probably 40, 50, to get that weed eater started, why would we be shocked that showing a person that everything they've been raised to believe and everything they've grown comfortable believing is all wrong because God said it was, and that they, in fact, need to recant those things, need to cease depending upon themselves and begin to depend on Christ to be their Savior. I'm just saying it takes some Patience. And some persistence. Sometimes, I think we can learn something about his residence, the place where he lived. But I, I, you know, when I read this, you know what I find? It didn't all stay that way. Zebulun comes to town. He's a he's a new uh, fellow in the area. He he goes. He dwells by the sea. He begins to engage in commerce, and he begins by going to the haven of the sea. But what happens? We see a reputation builds, and Zebulun no longer is going to the haven now. Zebulun is becoming the haven. The Bible says this, he shall be a haven of ships. Now, if it, listen, if you've got a testimony, you'll know exactly what I mean. That a testimony perpetuates our gospel witness. It is not just the substance of our gospel witness. It perpetuates our gospel witness. Can I give you an example? If you work on a public job, and if you're bold about your walk with Christ, you might find that sometimes you have to go find people and tell them, but you might find that sometimes people start to come and find you when things happen in their life. You see, at first it began with Zebulun going to them, but it didn't take long until the ships were coming in. To Zebulun, I don't know what happened. I don't know if he started a business. I don't know if uh, he planted himself there and made it his life and mission and purpose and began a business of some kind, maybe refitting ships or maybe providing supplies. But in some way, something changes. And now it's not Zebulun going to them. They're going to Zebulun. And why are they doing that? Well, you begin to think about what a haven functions as for a going people. And you understand that there's a few things that it is... Important for, I would say this, uh, that a haven is a place that you go for a reckoning to for your plotting your course. So what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, uh, a haven would be a place on a map where ships are sailing out from. And, you know, you don't really know where you're going until you know where you are. Somebody say amen to that. I was reading a book just back of this on uh, the sinking of the whale well ship Essex. I don't know if you've ever read anything on that matter. They just In fact, they made a movie about it. But uh, the Essex was uh, sunk in, I believe it was 1851. And I may have my date a little off there. But they say that the sinking of the whale ship Essex was to the 1800s what the sinking of the Titanic has been to the 1900s. They say that young people would learn about it in school, and it was common lore and common knowledge. Uh, you could say the name Essex, and people would immediately know that you were talking about a whaling ship uh, that had uh, been scuttled, that had been rammed by a whale. And by the way, that's where Herman Melville got the uh, idea for Moby Dick, that had been rammed by a whale and had been sunk over in the Pacific Ocean. After the Essex was attacked by a whale, which was a sort of an odd thing to take place, the whale uh, rammed the side of the ship. They still don't really know why it happened. They suspect it was because uh, there had been a problem with one of the whaling boats and they had taken it back onto the boat and flipped it upside down and began to repair it and hit it with a hammer. They say that sperm whales make a, a, a knocking sound just before they attack, the two males do. And so some people believe that that had provoked this male whale, this male sperm whale, into attacking... Their boat, but uh, twice the whale ran into the side of this ship, and at about ten minutes uh, it had capsized and had began to sink. And these men gathered themselves in three whaling ships, gathered all the provisions that they could, and set out upon a lone and miserable journey through a hot and dreary ocean. It was said that whenever they got on the boat, that they had managed to get some of the navigational tools from off the Essex. And uh, they had a compass, and they had the ability through the the horizon to be able to understand what their uh, latitude was. In other words, they could tell how far they were this way to that way. But the problem is, though it was easy to determine a person's latitude relative to the east and west setting of the sun and, and a simple compass, to determine longitude was a much more difficult matter. They had the direction in one way, but they didn't have the direction in the other way. They were just a few days away from a place that they could have made port. But because they did not know their location, they instead tried to sail and catch the westerlies and go down the western coast of South America. About 90 days later, the survivors that had not yet been eaten were discovered by several whaling ships. And the story began to unfold. Now, you know what their problem was? They didn't know where they were at because they didn't really know where they had sank. Because they didn't know where they had started their journey. They had no clue really where they were at in the matter. You know, one of the things that I believe God allows you and I to do as born-again believers is to become a point and a source of truth and reality in the life of a lost person when all the smoke and mirrors of the politics and philosophy of the world is pushed away, you know what the lost person's really seeking to? They're trying to find a compass. They're trying to find a place where they know there's absolute truth. And guess what? You and I as believers, we have that absolute truth in the Word of God. And you know what you'll find? You'll find this, that if you'll be a witness to those that are around you, And if you'll be kind and compassionate, pray for them and love them, you'll find there might be some times when they come to you and they say this, you know, preacher, I saw something on the TV the other day, and I wonder what you think about it. You know, co-worker, I I heard something on the radio the other day, and I wonder what you think about it. You know, friend, I read something in a book the other day, and it got me thinking, and I wonder what you think about it. And you know what that is? That's a perfect opportunity to say, well, you know what? I think doesn't really matter. But can I tell you what the Word of God says about it? And become a reckoning point for plotting a course. I'd say that a haven is probably a good reckoning point for plotting. I'd say that a haven is no doubt a good refuge point for protection. I'm reminded of when uh, Paul the Apostle uh, was setting out upon a uh, ship there in the book of Acts. And uh, they... Uh, were getting ready, they were going to sail on, but they found a haven that the Bible says was commodious to winter in, and they waited on their journey, and they didn't set sail uh, at the exact time that they should have. And the reason they did that is because a haven, of course, would be sort of a a covered, a a culvert, maybe a bay, for instance, some place that could protect them from the elements of the open sea. You see, they would understand, a ship would, that in the midst of a storm, if they got out alone on the open sea, there was a good chance they'd be capsized. But if they could find a place that could provide them some covering, maybe they could get some protection to weather the storm. You know what you may find people saying to you? If you'll be a witness in your place of work, you know, they may uh, come to you and say something like this, You know, I just lost my mother. It's got me thinking about some things. You know, my my little child is real sick right now. And I don't know how to pray, but I know you pray. And would you be willing to talk to me and pray with me? Now listen, I'm not saying that your praying is the same thing as salvation. Don't misunderstand me. But I am saying this, that sometimes when they understand that you've got something, they don't. And when they see that when the storms of life begin to batter upon your ship, that you're anchored to something, they might just come to you and begin to find out what it is in your life that gives you the strength and protection for the storms that you face. I think it'd probably be pretty good to find a refuge point in a time of protection, but I think it'd probably be a real good place to find a resource point for the provisions that you might need. I think really what's being said here when it says that Zebulun shall be a haven for ships, I think what it probably means is that some business that he started profited by and profited the ships that would come in there. And they would actually come to that haven for the very distinct purpose of dealing with the Jewish people that lived there. You know, it's not uncommon in a haven like this that they would winter in, that little businesses would be dotted that could repair a ship or could provide food or or provide sails or provide medicine that when they set out on another journey that might last months or, or maybe even years, they would have the provisions that they would need. And you know what? They begin to come to Him to get what they needed in life. Can I give you another example? You know, it might be that you'll find lost people coming to you and saying this, You know, my marriage is really struggling. Friend, what do you think I should do that I might right the ship while it's going wrong? They might come to you and say something like this. You know, I've been struggling with an addiction or with a temptation. And I wonder if you can provide me some kind of help and some kind of comfort. They might come to you looking for some wisdom that they can't get from a lost and dying world. You say, preacher, it's all speculative. No, no, not quite. What it is is anecdotal. Because I can give you instances of each and every one of these things where I, either in my life or in the life of someone else that I know, someone has come to me and said, you know, I've been witnessing to this person for a long time and they came to me the other day and they said, I know you pray, would you pray for me? They came to me the other day and said, you know, I've got a question about the Bible. Me and some buddies were talking and I knew you'd have the answer. Now, I'm not saying that this is the sum and total of being a witness But I am saying this, that when you live the life of a witness and and, and of a testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be times when you pursue those that are in need, but then there will be times that they come and find you to get the wisdom and strength and advice and counsel and truth that they're seeking. I think we can learn some things about his residence. I think we can learn some things about his uh, reputation, but I think probably there's some realizations that he experienced that might encourage us some. The Bible says this, that his border shall be unto Zidon. Now, what does that mean? Well, I think personally that it's figurative language. And I think it's simply saying this that Zebulun, this landlocked nomadic man that you would have never thought would have been part of a seafaring people, all of a sudden he's going to come into a place in his life where when men mention the great port city of Zidon, they'll mention with it the name of Zebulun and of the descendants of this son. You know, can I just say this? That there's some things that I've got to be a part of with serving God that I never could have been a part of if I hadn't been serving God. It is a great, grand, high, and holy calling, not just to be a pastor or preacher, but to be a Christian and to be a witness. I think about some of the things that maybe Zebulun got to experience as a result of this. You know, I would imagine that he got to be a partner to great expeditions by dwelling by the sea. No doubt there were, whether it was his ships or someone else's ships, in living there, there were probably some explorations, some things that were done, uh, some voyages that were taken that Zebulun was enabled, either through his own participation or maybe through his investment, to reap the benefits of and to enjoy being a part of. I think to myself, man, what an honor to be a part of the, of the great commission. Do you understand that if you're saved by the grace of God, when you go and hand out a track or tell somebody about God's love and about the cross of Calvary, you understand that you're a fellow laborer with God? You understand that you're a fellow laborer with the thrice holy God of heaven. You understand that you're a part of something so much bigger and so much broader and vaster than you ever could have done on your own. I mean, listen, what could most of us aspire to? Maybe most, maybe we could aspire to write a great song or write a great book, show up on TV sometime. Maybe if we really work, we could aspire to be the best in our field. But nothing comes close to the fact that if we're willing to be a testimony and a witness, we get to be part of the work of God and the great commission and the work that God's doing in this day that we live in. We get to be a partner to great expeditions. I'd say he was probably a witness to great exploits that had taken place. You know, one of the things that they describe when they write about the Essex is that they're in Nantucket, where she made port and sailed out from, that about the greatest activity that they had at that time, the 1800s. Anytime they wanted something to do, you know what they'd do? They'd go down to that old whaling town and they'd watch the ships come in. You know why? Because they never had any idea what was going to be coming in on them. They didn't know what exotic animals might have been brought back. They didn't know what treasures might have been uh, rescued from foreign lands. They had no clue maybe what people had been picked up in faraway islands. And no doubt the things that they saw, they could fill books with. Well, let me tell you something, friend. The things that I've seen God do, I could fill books with. I've seen God get a hold of people that nobody could get a hold of. Man, I've, I, listen, I, that person that you say, God never saved them, I've seen God save them. Yeah. I, I, listen, I, I've seen God do some... I mean, I could tell you funny stories, amen. I, was, I can't remember who. Right, well, right when I came here, somebody was out knocking on doors and somebody come to the door buck naked, amen. <laughs> I don't think it's anybody that goes here now. Uh, that came to the door. I, if it is, tell me later, because I, I want to know. But, uh, you know, I've seen funny things. Everybody's seen funny things. My dad worked in the bus ministry for a lot of years, and he said that a lot of times, Easter time, they'd uh, they'd do a thing where they'd buy up a bunch of chickens. You know, PETA really didn't have as much of a presence in the 70s, I guess. And they'd buy up a bunch of chickens, give to all these bus kids. He said, for years later, you'd be going walking through lawns down, some big old scrawny rooster go running across the road. <laughs> I've seen some funny things. I've seen some things I could—I mean, I would—I would have never imagined on my own. But I've also seen people that I never would have imagined that they would have got saved, get saved. I've seen people that didn't have a chance in life that God turned their life around and made something great out of their life. I've been a witness to great exploits through the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the investing in the lives of people. And I believe you can probably see some of those great and marvelous things too. Do you remember? Do you remember what uh, Christ told Nathaniel? Uh, Christ had already he had spoken to Philip, who was the brother of Nathaniel. And uh, Philip, after he had met the Lord, he ran back to Nathaniel, and he said to Nathaniel, "He said, I found the Christ, who is the Messiah." Nathaniel says, "I don't know about that." And so Philip brings Nathaniel to Christ. Philip had been sitting, musing under a fig tree, maybe considering about the veracity of of Philip's statement, whether it was true or not. And whenever he comes face to face with the Savior, the Savior says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile." And Nathanael looks at him, and I imagine that what Nathanael was thinking is, You don't know me. How could you say such a thing? Just empty, flattering words. And Christ says, uh, Nathaniel, I saw thee when thou wast under the fig tree. That got his attention. <laughs> How did he know? How could he have known where Nathaniel had been? How could he have known what he had been doing? And all of a sudden shock floods Nathaniel's face. And then the Savior looks at him and he says, Nathaniel, <laughs> you wonder because I say I saw you under the fig tree. He says, thou shalt see greater things than thee. From there in John chapter number 1, we come to John chapter number 2 when the Lord Jesus walks into a marriage in Canaan of Galilee and performs His first ever miracle in His earthly ministry. Nathanael could have never imagined he'd get to see those things. He could have never imagined that this was the Son of God. He could have never imagined these things. But God took him to great and wonderful places and showed him great and marvelous things. Why? Because he was willing to be a part of what God was doing. I think you'd probably get to be a witness to great exploits. But, you know, I think one of the benefits, and I'll close with this, is that you'd probably get to be a neighbor to great explorers if you lived in the haven of the sea and did what Zebulun did. There's no telling the stories that he heard told. There's no telling the folks that he surrounded himself with as he endeavored to be a part of this seafaring town. And now, when all this is done, when they speak about Zidon, you know who they speak right next to of? They speak of Zebulun. How is it that Zebulun could become a part of what Zidon was? Let me tell you something. We live too much in the past. I'm just being honest with you. We live in a day where we always talk about the yesteryear. We talk about the Spurgeons and the Moody's. We talk about the Sankey's. We talk about... All of these folks that did all these great things. And I praise God for them. I probably wouldn't be standing here in front of you if it hadn't been for men and women like that. I'm not trying to minimize those things. We talked about, you know, Dr. Seitler, and Brother Roloff, Brother Mays. We talk about Billy Sunday, and we talk about Oliver Green. We talk about all these great men that did all of these great things. But you understand that it wasn't those men that were really so great. Rather, it was God that they allowed to consume them that did great and mighty things. I think Elisha gives us a pretty good perspective on this. is walking with the aged prophet Elijah. They've come to the end of Elijah's road. Elisha knows that this is so, and he says to Elijah, if I could have anything from you, I'd want a double portion of your spirit. Elijah says, you've asked a hard thing of me, but if you'll stay with me until I leave this earth, then I'll give it to you. They go to various places and Elisha is just right in step with him. You imagine that he watched carefully the footsteps of the aged prophet trying to follow exactly what they were. All of a sudden, he hears the thundering hooves of the horsemen of Israel and the chariots of heaven. And he looks and he sees a whirlwind begin to spin around the person of Elijah. And he's caught up. Into heaven, As he goes, Elijah turns back and he takes that mantle, that mantle that had been in the very throne room of God, in the presence of Jehovah, and he takes it and casts it down to Elisha. Elisha picks it up and he takes it. He places it around him. And he doesn't say this, where is Elijah? He knows where Elijah is. But rather, he looks towards heaven and he asks this question, Where? is the Lord God of Elijah. He understood where Elijah was, but he was looking for the God of Elijah. He takes that mantle. Now, wouldn't you think that with Elijah gone, that mantle couldn't do anything? But he takes that mantle and he smote the Jordan, and the Jordan rivers parted in twain, and he walks across on dry land. You know what he found to be true? He found this to be true. Though Elijah was a great man, he was also a man of like passions as we are. And it wasn't really Elijah that was so great. It was the God of Elijah that was so great. And he found this to be true, that if he'd yield to God the way Elijah did, then he could see God do as much, yea, more in his life than he had seen God do in Elijah's life. You know, it's so easy to look backwards and say, oh, for the yesterdays, but who's going to be the caretaker of the todays and tomorrows? It's easy to look backwards and say, look at what they did. But who's going to look forward and say, look what we're going to do for the Lord Jesus Christ? How easy it is to get so caught up in what's been accomplished that we never look at what's left undone. And we never set our hand to the plow for the work that God has set us for. Listen to me, I I, I enjoy talking about them them old men of God. I enjoy talking about what happened in the yester years. But I would a lot rather, I'd a lot rather see God do something in the now than get all hung up in the yester year. I believe we can do both. I believe we can look back, and I believe we can see God do something now. I'm not trying to make those things mutually exclusive. But I'm saying this, don't get so infatuated with that that you miss that God wants to do something in your life right now if you'll allow Him to and if you'll be partner and part of the work of God. Their heads bowed with their eyes closed as a musician slips to the piano. Listen, I wonder if there'd be anyone tonight that'd say, Preacher, that's what I want. I want to be a part of the work of God. I want to be a greater witness. I want to be like Zebedee. I want to do what he did. I, I want to set my hand to the plow, and I want to be a part of the work of God. I want to do the job that God has called me to do. I want to be a fellow laborer with the God of heaven. And you'd say, preacher, I, that's what I... Now listen, I'm, I'm not asking if you're going to come to the altar. I'm not asking if you got stirred. I'm asking you this question. How many would say, preacher, I want to be a part of what you're talking about. I want to be a part of what God is doing this day we live in. Would you slip your hand up if that's you? All over the room. All over the room. Just about everybody. Let me tell you something. You're going to have to make that decision. I wish I'd make it for you, but I can't make it for you. But you're going to have to make that decision. You know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to do like Zebulun and say, well, if that's what it takes, then I'll get up and I'll go and I'll be a part of the work that God is doing. I'll be the witness that I need to be and I will testify the love and grace of God